This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Portzio. On this bonus episode of the podcast, we are taking a little break from talking about character actors to discuss some recent and upcoming festivals. Last year, thanks to the IFI and Europa Cinemas, I got to attend the Venice Film Festival as part of the 28 Times Cinema Programme. Myself and 27 other young film lovers, each from a different EU country, were selected to be on the festival's Giornati Deli Autori Strand, a programme for rising auteurs, and it was the best experience of my life, hands down. This year, the programme ran under the new title, 27 Times Cinema, the change due to Brexit. The Irish representative this time around was Mia Sherry, so I spoke to her about being on a festival jury, attending the first major film festival to take place in person in the COVID era, and some of the non-Jornani titles that she saw there, including the much-acclaimed Nomad Land and Pieces of a Woman. Then, in the second half of the show, I spoke to Owen Harnett, whose brilliant short Hypnos will be screening both in person and online at this year's Indie Cork Film Festival on October 7th. Both conversations I thought were really interesting. First up is my chat with Mia about Venice. Abbiamo voluto aprire così la 77esima edizione della Mostra Internazionale d'Arte Cinematografica della Biennale di Venezia. Hi! Hi, how's it going? Oh, thanks. Congratulations on being selected uh, by the IFI and Europa Cinemas to represent Ireland in the 27 Times Cinema program. I got to attend last year when it was the 28 Times Cinema and it's a, it's an amazing experience and you know you get to be part of the jury on the Giornati Deli Autori strand. So so how was the festival overall? Oh, I mean it was just uh, like the most unique two weeks of my life. Um I'd actually been fortunate I'd attended film festivals of kind of a similar scale before. And when I applied in like April you know I was like September like that's so far away COVID will be gone you know (laughs) like I'll have nothing to worry about it'll be a completely normal experience and obviously um the weeks leading up to it kind of showed that no like COVID was very much here and it was going to be a very very different festival but like it's an absolute credit to the organizers because it literally went off without a hitch um and it was just really really incredible I'm kind of at a loss of like for words I felt really bad when my parents took me up from the airport I was like I feel like nothing I say will possibly like do justice to how genuinely uh incredible it was but uh yeah no it was um just yeah so unique just in terms of the the COVID of it all um did you as someone who's been to a lot of other big festivals like that did you uh notice a, a difference in terms of getting into you know screenings outside of your work and even like your responsibilities as part of that yeah so i mean what's really interesting for me is i uh attended berlinale um this february just gone which is kind of now like the last film festival that took place before covid and then to get to 10 venice which is kind of the first film festival to take place after COVID completely in person um, was really interesting. So yeah, like there were a lot of changes. And what was interesting for me is um, because of flights, I had to get there two days early. And so that meant that when I'd be walking around, I would literally see them constructing like the temperature check places and like the hand sanitizer places. Uh, But yeah, so basically just what it meant was you just, you had to kind of factor in an extra 30 minutes for everything. So 
whatever about getting into the screen, first of all, you had to get into, um, there's like a main kind of, uh, you know yourself, but a main village place where most of the cinemas are in close proximity. So to get just into there, you had to go through temperature checks, bag checks and um, hand sanitizer. As part of our jury duties, when we were seeing films that we were judging, we had to meet about 40 minutes beforehand and we all had to be there together and we all had to go in like as one group. Um, but then if it was just a film that I was seeing on my own time, um, you'd have to get there like 10 or 20 minutes beforehand because again, there were like two more temperature checks and then you're just your ticket checks. And it was online, obviously this year, usually you queue up and you get physical tickets. This year they uh, moved online. And it, to be fair, it usually went off without a hitch. Uh, the problem was is the scanners that they had sometimes I like, couldn't pick up um, on phone screens, depending if you had like, you know, like a glass like cover on it, or like if your bright if your lighting was weird. So yeah, I suppose the big thing was just time. You had to factor in a lot more time, and you also, it's kind of controversial now with TIFF. You had to wear your mask consistently through the whole film. Didn't matter what was happening. And honestly, you know, like the thing is, is uh, okay. Yeah, like the first two days, like it was a little bit weird, and like oh, like okay, this is a lot of stuff to remember. By the third day, because it's this tiny little island and you're there, like, most hours of the day, it literally became, like, literally became, like, the new normal. I'm glad you got to experience it. It seems like it wasn't too massively impacted. Um, can you tell listeners about the Giornati Delio Torre Strand and what type of movies tend to get selected for it? Yeah, so Giornati Delio Torre is essentially Venice's... Um, version of like Berlinale's Panorama or uh, Cannes director's Fortnite, and essentially they're a sister of Venice they're not totally the same basically they tend to focus more on emerging kind of auteurs and directors most of the films that I know we watch this year and that usually you watch will be first or second features um we did have I think for the first time um one of our films was was the director's fourth film, um, but usually it, it's more focused on, I suppose, um, less mainstream, more artistic films. They really seem focused on on more using film as like uh, socially communicative tools um, and artistically challenging um, films, which like everybody knows like Venice is usually kind of like one of the first heavy hitters we have before we get into like Hollywood award season and so what's really interesting about Giornate is it really is films that you probably would not usually choose to see um but like when I think back on like my favorite films like nine times out of ten there were something that I saw for Giornate so yeah (laughs) that's great and I know you can't discuss the Giornati movies uh, in depth too much, although um, we can say The Whaler Boy was the winner. Yes. Yeah. And uh, what was it like to be on a jury at a festival and like how much time and work went into that? A lot. A lot more than I had originally um, envisioned. But um, no, it's I have a lot more respect for like Kate Blanchett now. Um, <laughs> yeah, so basically we're, I suppose, kind of fortunate. Our program is short enough. It's only 10 films. But yeah, basically it means that uh, pretty much every day you'll have um, a film mandatory that you have to watch. Um, you'll usually see them together. There'll usually be a Q&A with the uh, film team afterwards. Whether or not you stay for that is, is up to you. 
Yeah, so you watch your films and then we have three sessions, jury deliberations, um, and you kind of divide it up into usually like threes or fours. Um, and you'll give, you know, a set time, like 20 minutes, half an hour to each film. And uh, our jury was presided over this year by Nadav uh, Lapid, who uh, won the Golden Bear Berlinale with his film Synonyms. And his perspective as an actual filmmaker was really, really interesting. So, yeah, so... You're juggling films, you're juggling um, jury deliberations, and then obviously, like, just being a, a delegate, you're also kind of juggling, um, you know, writing stuff and doing stuff for Europe cinemas. But then at the end, um, it kind of comes to a head, and we have our uh, word ceremony. So before that, we will have kind of shortlisted three that we'll discuss in depth. We'll give special mentions to the others, um, and then we kind of live stream the, the final um, awards. But yeah, it was weird this year with COVID. So we had to be all spread out and like socially distant. And then we would all like, if we wanted to speak, we'd have to like stand up and like take off our masks so people could like see our mm -hmm. lips. It was definitely, um, I'm sure one of the most unique ones, but you know what, like to be fair to them, it really went off without a hitch. Yeah. And I, I was watching some of the live streamed final debate and it was a, a real nail biter. It really was. I mean, um, it was, I think the first time as well. So Usually it's you vote for three and then the majority uh, winner has to get um, like one third or something of the of the votes. Uh, we didn't have that this year. So we had to go into then another round where we just selected two. Film. It was, yeah, and, and right up to the minute. And you know yourself, they instead of just, you know, counting them quietly, they read them out yeah. individually. And you're just you're trying to like count it up in your head. Oh, yeah, it was. It was such a fantastic experience to get to experience yeah. it live and knowing as well that they were films that like we had chosen and it sounds cheesy but genuinely I would have been happy if any of them had won mm. um, but the final two Residue and Whaler Boy they were really like they were like the cream of the crop <laughs> and um, I know that when I went last year to Venice before I wanted to work in film criticism or in the film industry getting to go to the festival and like work on a jury and you know talk to all these like people who their whole life revolves around going to these different festivals and you know 27 other young european um cinephiles like myself um I, it made me love it even more and i just came home wanting to watch everything and it really validated what i want to do in life i don't know about you what you want to do but like did you have a similar experience like did it make you love cinema even more oh like 100%. So um, I, I, I'm fairly certain that I want to go into film criticism uh, or film journalism. Um, but like before I had gone, uh, I suppose like lockdown had really kind of taken a toll on me. And like I was kind of getting into that general malaise of like I hadn't watched a film in like weeks. And like I used to usually like I'm usually watching like one a day. Um, so like that was like a lot for me. And I was like, oh, I don't like I can't do this. I'm going to be so exhausted. And then you get there and it's just, I like crack cocaine for a cinephile. Like it literally <laughs> just, it, it, would ju it just like fires you up. And, and it's everything from, you know, having the experience of like being in a cinema surrounded by people that you know were also there because of their love of film to even just like the conversations that you're having over dinner. Um, and what I found was really gorgeous this year was that you know a lot of people working at film festivals the gig economy and obviously with covid the gig economy has kind of been ruined as we're seeing especially in ireland uh, but what that fostered instead of like a every man for himself kind of mentality was a real like 
unity and like we've all got to look out for each other and I networked with so many amazing people and it was just a really nice community that was fostered there I think because we all realized that you know it's a very special year to be going and we were very fortunate to have gone and there was just uh, a lot of I think like gratefulness in every person that you saw that it was like look like thank god we're here and like thank god we're still getting to like engage in this really unique time Mm -hmm. um so yeah no it was it was great and it it really um confirmed me that whatever I want to do it's going to be in film like hands down um and then you know I launched my own online publication uh, just yesterday and stuff. And, and honestly, if I if I hadn't gone to Venice, I probably would have, you know, been like, no, it doesn't matter. What do I have to say? <laughs> uh, but Venice just really, no, it's it's um, such a brilliant place. Just foster continued love of film. Sometimes living in Ireland, uh, being a film person, like it can seem so small and you're you're posting your reviews and you're like, does anyone even care? I mean, yeah. I know 10 people who'd be interested in this, but then when you go to Venice, you're like, oh no, people do care. This is a global yeah. thing. They're, exactly. This literally takes over a massive town for two yeah, weeks in exactly. a year. That was the weirdest thing as well. Like Berlin is so cosmopolitan. It's like spread out in a city and, you know, you can be like on the train like 30 or 40 minutes just to get to one theater. Whereas Venice, I mean, I don't know if they changed the geography a little bit of it because of COVID, but, like, literally it is just a film town for, like, these two weeks of the year. It just becomes this, like, little film haven. It was it was amazing. I literally was like, I could die here and I would be so happy. <laughs> and outside of the Giornati, you got to see a lot of the main competition. And from your tweets, mm. it seems like uh, this year's Golden Lion winner, uh, which was Chloe Zhao's Nomadland, uh, St. Francis McDormand, was your pick of the festival, so... Is Francis getting a third Oscar? Yeah, like 100%. Before, before I, so that was the last film I saw from Venice. Before that, I was like fairly certain Vanessa Kirby was clearly kind of, yeah. and she won, she won uh, the, the, the cup. And um, yeah, I was, you know, I was like, okay, Kirby's, Kirby's going for gold. But then Francis just swooped in. And no, it's Nomadland, um, like not to be sensationalistic, but it is, it's worthy of every single bit of praise you've seen. It's, uh, I've never seen anything like it. Genuinely, I've never seen anything like it. And Frances' performance, oh man, she really, it's the performance of her career. Like, I'll say that, um, just really unique. And also, like, for her, uh, who's kind of, like, now kind of become known as this, like, tacky turn, older, like, matriarch, to see her performance in this as being, like, very different and quite vulnerable, it was just spectacular. I feel really fortunate to have seen it where and when I did. Yeah, because I've heard um, from people praising it that, you know, Frances McDormand has won for Fargo and Three Billboards, like they're the highest of her career, and they're very showy performances, whereas this is uh, very quiet and yeah, it's a lot of her listening and it's very in service of the movie. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Yes. It's such a, a lovingly made film, which sometimes you don't, you don't always see when you're watching a film, but this really watching it you're like the people that were involved with this like loved it and really felt that they had a a story to tell um but like genuinely it was one of the only films that I can remember watching and like just shots of landscape had me in tears like Chloe Zhao really just um kicked the ball out of the park with this one yeah I think we're going to be seeing a lot lot more from her 
And uh, as you mentioned, Vanessa Kirby seemed to have a big Venice with these two buzzy titles, um, which were Pieces of a Woman, which she won Best Actress for, and then The World to Come. Uh, can you tell me about them? I think you saw both, right? Yes, I did. Um, so Pieces of a Woman was really, really interesting. That was, I think, it was one of the first films I saw. I think it was the third the thing this year was that usually when you're at film festivals you get like a big brochure and it's like all the films in it and they have like little bios uh obviously this year because they had to move it online it literally was just like this online kind of like ticketing booth and all you could see was the title so there was a lot of ones that I kind of went into blind because like I was like that sounds interesting or like oh well my friend's gonna see that so pieces of a woman was actually kind of a case of that I didn't really know what to expect but it was phenomenal uh, it was really, really good, and and Kirby just steals the show. Not uh, an easy thing to do when you're up against like Shia LaBeouf and and Benny Safdie. It, it really beautiful, really, really well done. And then the world to come. Her performance was, you know, also good. I mean, it, it is very much in line with these, you know, like white lesbian period dramas we're seeing right now. <laughs> like it, it, it's not, to- it's not totally surprising. But the the thing that really is unfortunate about the world to come is it's uh, it just very clearly like the next step in like Casey Affleck's like PR redemption. Like it, the whole film, to be honest with you, it is absolutely shameless. It, it's not going to go down in the annals of, of cinema. Like it's not going to be Portrait of a Lady or Call Me by Your Name. I imagine it will get a fairly small release. But um, it was good. The problem is, is it's it's literally being used as like Casey Affleck propaganda. Right, but uh, on the on the topic of pieces of a woman, um, it's from Cornell um, Mundrusco. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Who's this um, yeah. very flashy muscular director? He made a movie a couple of years ago called Jupiter's Moon, which I really liked. And um, he uses a lot of long takes, and I've heard there's this really distressing thirty minute <gasps> opening in real time. Um, how stressful are we talking? So here's the thing: is I knew nothing about it. Now, admittedly, when I went back and read the plot. I do, really don't want to give it away because I do think it's kind of better if you don't know what it's about. The minute that I went back and read the plot, I was like, oh yeah, of course. But it's, I was literally like white knuckled on the edge of my seat. And, and it was it was one of those ones where everything that was happening was normal, but it was his command of like the camera and the lighting and even just the like, these subtle changes in the colour palettes. And you were just like, no, like something awful is about to occur. And to be fair, it's a very it's a very traumatic thing that does happen, but he does it in a really uh, brilliant way. That's not like baity or like you know for shock value. It's it's just done, and it happens, and it's you know it's kind of empathetic towards it, and um, without kind of you know uh, being like overly melodramatic. But yeah, no, that thirty minute scene just oh put the fear of god in you literally <laughs> put the fear of god in me i walked out and i was like i'm never going through that but yeah and it's a testament to uh shia LaBeouf and vanessa kirby as well because it's like that's turning the scene and the cameras really consistently on their faces and they carry it so well mm. um but yeah i know definitely not something to watch if you're looking to relax on a night in <laughs> and then another big name at the festival was um, Regina King because she had her directorial debut One Night in Miami she established herself as a queen of acting last year with If Beale yeah. Street Can Talk and Watchmen um, how is she behind the camera? incredible really she just she knew the story that she wanted to tell and how she wanted to tell it and it was so imbued with like her and like you know her narrative and also like this the share narrative of black people in America Oh, she knocked it out of the park. I mean, 
and she makes a lot of bold choices as well. I mean, um, for for her first feature film, um, like she doesn't do the the title sequence until like twenty minutes in, but it is incredible. It's the best title sequence I saw of the whole festival, like that I've ever seen. Like it, it's really really good. She's so stylistically bold, and she directs her actors so well, and it's just a film and a love letter and and a commentary. She. She really, I think it's going to be a very tough fight between her and Chloe Zhao. I hope so. I will definitely be seeing a lot more of her behind the camera. I can't wait for it. That's great to hear. And um, there are two movies that I was curious about that got mixed reviews, which are Lachi, which was the opening night Italian divorce drama. I've seen kind of comparisons mm-hmm. to Marriage Story with that. Yeah. And then uh, Gia Coppola's satire Mainstream, which uh, seems mm-hmm. like it boasts a crazy Andrew Garfield turn, which I'm all mm-hmm. here for. Uh, what did you make of them? <laughs> so Lachi, I mean, my issue with the marriage story Lachi comparisons is I feel like it would be like, it just it, not every film about a marriage is now going to be marriage story. Yeah, you know what true. I mean? It's yeah. like, <laughs> but no, like that was like when we walked into the theater. That was I saw it on the first day, um, and everybody was like, "Oh, it's like an Italian marriage story." I was like, "It absolutely is not." Like, but you get out of here, and um, Lachi's. I mean, I'm conscious that, you know, it was the first film I saw and I may have been overexcited, but I, I, I thought it was good. Um, they made a bold choice, I guess you could say, in that they uh, they chose two different sets of actors for, for the main couple um, years apart, which is kind of bold now when we have, you know, the technology to just, you know, age them. Um, but, but they really, they really uh, pull it off quite well. Um, it was good. It wasn't optimistic um it wasn't necessarily you know like a gorgeous love letter to like interpersonal familial relationships but you know it was good it was um it told its story well um and it was very very well acted um and the final scene is is very very good um and you know like they're good like i mean it's it's very much a kind of a a director's film like there's oral motifs and there's visual motifs and you know there's a whole thing lachi in italian means the ties there's a whole thing about like you know tying your shoelaces um and so it's it's good it's it's uh it's not incredible like i will say like it's definitely not the best film i saw but it's it's not worthy of all the slander i think it got um as for mainstream it was definitely the most stylistically bold one i saw which like i have to give a geocopolo props for that like it really just is is very very bold and and it you know, not without reason. Um, you know, it is very much a commentary in this kind of like YouTube, um, you know, pseudo form. Um, Andrew Garfield is amazing. The problem with casting someone like Andrew Garfield alongside like Maya Hawk, who's really just kind of beginning in her career, is that there's immediately like a kind of a not power dynamic, but like like he's you know Andrew Garfield and she's you know kind of still training Maya Hawk so yeah. there's very much like a, a kind of a, a misstep between them and it was unfortunate because it kind of highlighted how weak in parts her performance was um but it was look it was enjoyable the thing is, is it, it's that kind of convoluted story where Gia Coppola it was like she got so caught up in trying to you know, tell the story about how awful social media is, blah, 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 that it, it just, it ended up eating itself. You know, it was literally, it just went around and around in circles. Um, 
to the point that really it just kind of ends up not really becoming a critique at all and more kind of like a pointing finger being like that's bad and it's like we all know it's bad like you know um but interestingly i saw another film um called the man who sold his skin which is based on a similar principle of this idea that you know art doesn't owe you anything and it's kind of on us to you know um approach art however we choose um and that's by Kathy Ben-Hoor, and that, I saw them the same day, so I saw Mainstream in the morning, The Man Who Stole the Skin at night, and it just, they're like, just The Man Who Stole the Skin is like, worlds apart, and that mm-hmm. actually does it well, and doesn't try to get like, too caught up in its own like, verbosity, and grand grandosity, um, so yeah, no, if you're gonna see a film about like, cultural critiques, I, I would miss Mainstream maybe, and I'd go for The Man Who Stole the Skin instead, but Mainstream, like, it's fun. Like, I'm probably a fun watching it with your friends, but, like, I have no desire to see it again. Nor will I ever. <laughs> so d- definitely check out uh, The Man Who Sold His Skin. Oh, man. So, literally, like, The Man Who Sold His Skin, I say, like, Nomadland is, like, in a, it just, it's in its own realm. Like, it's so good. <laughs> it's just, like, of course, it's number one. But if I had to pick, like, an actual number one, like, it would be The Man Who Sold His Skin. Very good film. And um, on top of uh, being Abel Ferrara fans on this podcast who had his movie um, mm. Sporting Life at Venice, which I don't think you saw, uh, we're big fans of South Korean cinema um, here, especially thrillers. So I couldn't let you go without asking about uh, Night in Paradise. So should, should we be excited for that? Um, <laughs> this is, this is a, a, a fault on my part of like my lack of knowledge of South Korean cinema because admittedly the only uh, South Korean film I'd seen before that was Parasite like just to, oh, right, just to yeah. be bluntly honest so I didn't really know what to expect and I found out afterwards that this kind of genre of like insane like kind of gory revenge thrillers yes. is, is, is a thing and mm. um, so when I was watching it I literally was like what the heck am I watching if you're a fan of it I I guarantee you'll probably love it. The problem with me was I, I don't love gore and I don't love like watching kind of, uh, you know, like gunshot fights for like more than five minutes, but like 30 minutes into it, I'd become completely numb to like the side of like blood and like gunshots. So it definitely goes very hard. I don't think I understand the genre well enough. I didn't enjoy it, but I don't know the genre. So hopefully you really like it. I know there was one girl who was a fan of South Korean films, and she really liked it. So, I mean, hopefully that speaks better for it than, than I can, unfortunately. You, you said everything. I'm, I'm hyped. I'm, I'm very excited. Yeah. Um, <laughs> usually movies that play at these festivals take around a year before they get released in Ireland, and sometimes they even get small mm. releases like Baby Teeth or um, Wedding yeah. for the Barbarians I saw last year just came out. And um, I was wondering, speaking to people like Stan and Jesus, who work with the 27 times cinema and you know attend a lot of festivals or you know you mentioned you networked a lot was there any talk about how covid may you know impact on these movies getting seen more wide because i imagine since they're finished and movies haven't been made for three months or haven't been able to Mm. shoot that um we might get to see them a bit quicker and maybe they'll get more of a spotlight it's gonna be 50 50 so i mean i think right now Nomadland, One Night in Miami, Piece of a Woman actually got picked up by Netflix. I think we're going to see like a lot of like the the awards contenders. They're probably going to be pushed out to like 
streaming platforms maybe like side by side theatrical releases but i think the emphasis will be on just like getting them out to get them you know uh viable for nomination a lot of them though realistically are going to get pushed to 2021 a lot of the films even with giornati that we're seeing they're not necessarily done you know they still have you know sound mixing to be done or you know like little like editing tweaks to be done you know and then what that means is also like okay so you have the film but you know usually it, it's in romanian or french or german and then you have to get subtitles for you know like 27 plus different countries and so that's a lot of time as well and and speaking to um a film marketer he he said you no know, realistically like a lot of them a lot of them are just pushing their site to 2021 and, and they're going to try again for the theatrical release there like if they're not you know going to be if they're not going to stand a chance at, like you know the oscars or anything that would kind of be worth their while they'll just wait and try for 2021 so it's unfortunate i mean hopefully we'll have learned to live with covid a little bit better come you know january 2021 and we can start kind of like getting back into the groove of things but no i think right now they're kind of picking a very select few to go out on on streaming and and maybe theatrical releases but other than that i I think you can expect to settle in for a long wait that's a shame although it must be said residue which you said was the runner up for the dramatic is on netflix now which is great Uh, yeah no so residue was really fortunate it actually got picked up by ava duvernay's array distribution house so so that got on netflix and it's in all english-speaking uh territories so really do watch it if you can it's it's a fantastic film it's really really brilliant um i'm looking forward to actually rewatching it i think yeah very timely as well mm, absolutely and it's i mean i was really fortunate i actually got to speak to the filmmakers um and the crew and there is a lot of love that went into that film um and a lot of community and stuff and if I've been to Washington DC and I've been to some of those projects and anybody who has like I mean it's it's shocking how accurate they get it so yeah no really do check it out if you can and um lastly I just want to pick your brain two questions uh what was your highlight of the festival and it can be non-movie related because you're meeting all these great people from across Europe and uh did you spot any celebrities which uh I saw a few last year <laughs> yeah and um, so my highlight I think Seeing Nomadland, like, you know yourself, 27 times cinema, 28 times cinema is such a unique experience and you're spending, like, two weeks in close proximity with these, like, 27 people. Um, and they really do become, like, your best friends. And so we all saw Nomadland together on the last day. And that was just a really, really special moment. We were all, like, you know, crying, socially distantly, trying to hug each other afterwards, which was just really special. Um, and then that night we had been like booked in for like an area in like Isola di Edipo, which is kind of like a, a place for Giornate people to like have a drink and like mix and have a dinner or whatever. Um, and I got to speak to the Irish filmmaker Ty Fleming, who actually did a film there. Yeah. And that was so great. I mean, it was it was quite late. I think by this point it was like 12 o'clock at night and he was like leaving to get his flight the next morning. Um, but we had a gorgeous uh, conversation about Irish cinema and you know what I was doing and what he was doing. So that was really nice. And special as for celebrities i saw i got really lucky so i got to see the first night when tilda went in to give her oh speech i actually was walking and i just like looked in the car and through these like blacked out screens i could just make out her mad pop of hair and the the <laughs> mask that she had um, and then i saw her on the the red carpet my friend has the most hilarious photo of like tilda and like my eye like in the corner of the screen but you can just <laughs> tell i'm like beaming and mm. um, and then actually when i went to see mainstream it was the weirdest thing it was like five seconds before the film started 
this like kind of like emergency exit door opened and in walks i kid you not kate blanchett with her her mask yeah her mask and sunglasses that she took off and she was sitting in the row in front of me and it was just so distracting like the whole (laughs) film i was like is she laughing does she like it um and then the last day uh we were in like that kind of festival area during the award ceremony i got to see vanessa kirby holding the cup and i got to see uh yaha uh, marhani from the man who sold his skin who won the silver line for acting so no it was crazy but they're, they're everywhere and like that's not counting the amount of times that i'd just be like walking around and like in a coffee shop i'd be like oh that's the supporting actress from that film oh yeah, yeah. it's crazy they're literally and like people had said that to me they're like you'll see celebrities everywhere i just kind of assumed a covid with masks and sunglasses or whatever i wouldn't but i'll tell you now like if i can spot at least 10 during covid i can't imagine how many i'd see during normal years so yeah if you want to go celebrity spotting there's surely no better place <laughs> that's great and you mentioned that you just set up a film publication right can you talk a bit about yes. that yeah, so it's an online publication. Um, basically, I was really fortunate. I received a laid law scholarship for film research earlier this summer. Um, and while I was doing it, I kind of realized how much I valued film scholarship and my own approach to films, but also how detrimental I think it is that these discussions and debates about you know important things that are going on in trends in cinema are kind of doing so like behind paywalls and closed doors. Um, so I set up the Cinemagraph, um, which just launched to basically kind of Um, level the playing field a little bit and give emerging film scholars and film critics the chance to kind of talk on these platforms about these things to you know share their thoughts and just kind of engage uh, you know community of of film lovers who maybe you know aren't in film school or don't have access to that but are just as passionate as as anybody else so yeah we just launched one wordpress twitter instagram facebook cinemagraph Great, we'll give it a plug on the I Know That Face Twitter. <laughs> the Irish film Twitter community really comes out in droves for support, so it's much appreciated. <laughs> Great. Um, thanks for taking the time to speak to me. Not at all. Thank you so much for having me on. No, that um, was Literally the whole time in Venice, I was like, Stephen, Stephen's going to talk to me. And Jesus remembers you and oh, wants to say hi. <laughs> thanks. That's great to hear. <laughs> Listen, thanks so much. Okay. I really enjoyed this. That was my conversation with Mia about Venice. Next, I talked to Owen Harnett about his short Hypnos, which will screen at IndieCork Film Festival on October 7th. Enjoy. Just a little bit of context in terms of how I came to discover Hypnos is that you know, we were in uh, UCD together and we were in the film society, so we'd kind of run in the same circles and we often see each other in town or we'll message each other about a new movie. You were like, I've made a short, would you like to check it out? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I, I really loved it. And you messaged me saying, Indie Cork Film Festival, it's got in. So uh, you must be over the moon about that. Yeah, it's great. And well, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to watch my film. I really do appreciate that. And I especially appreciate the kind words as well. It's very flattering. It's fantastic being able to get into the festival. Um, so as you know yourself, uh, my previous film, my first film, uh, was on the festival circus as well. It got into the Galway Film Flag, got into Dublin International Film and Music Video Festival. It got into the Richard Harris Film Festival, and it got into a couple of uh, international ones as well. So to kind of see my second film uh, starting to get a bit successful as well, it's um, yeah, it's a wonderful feeling because, as I'm sure you're aware from having watched the film itself, it is very much 
driven to be in a cinema format with the very dark visuals and the the soundscape of it. it it's definitely the type of film where i don't think you could really get the experience of watching it on your phone certainly not if you're to be outside watching the film because it's just graded to be so dark it's intended to be viewed in a dark environment right and you know i loved it it's so surreal and atmospheric and it looks incredible um how would you describe it the synopsis i'm giving for hypnosis is that it's a mythological art house piece it's a little bit of a mouthful but i think that that the scripter does let the audience know that you know it is something that is going to tend to be a bit more avant-garde than usual it's a little bit more abstract now it still has a a structure of uh, you know like kind of one two three acts beginning middle and end Uh, but it's primarily told through or well I should really say it's entirely told through visuals because there's no dialogue there's no sound effects Uh, it's just a, a musical soundtrack the whole way through so it is in essence a silent movie in the way that me and you understand a silent film is <laughs> that it isn't silent at all. It just means that there's music. Um, story-wise, it, it tells a story of a mortal human being who is guided on a journey through uh, two different gods, uh, one called Hypnos and the other being Thanatos, uh, both of whom are the Greek gods of sleep and death, respectively. And the film basically explicates her journey through... A journey through a process of change through which she won't return. Right, and you, as you said, you were very inspired by Greek mythology. Um, when did you come up with the idea of uh, taking those stories and themes and making this movie out of it? Well, to be honest, I mean, I think it was a it was a pretty organic process in that I didn't really go into it with the idea of. I love Greek mythology and I'm going to find a way to turn it into film. It wasn't like that at all. What got the wheels turning in my brain making a film like this was really just the aesthetic. Um, I don't know if I said got to mention this to you before, but what I would say is that the actual main inspiration for this film is other artwork. It's, um, you know, like 19th century uh, wood engravings uh, by Gustave Doré, like very stark black and white uh, pieces of art. And certainly, you know, when you're when you do tend to be into cinema that's like a little bit darker than usual a little bit more experimental than usual that's going to kind of be pervasive in your own taste it's going to lie in your subconscious but if i could pick one film that would be uh, an explicit inspiration is a film called begotten i don't know if you've uh, heard of that before it's a uh, 1990 horror movie this is from the director of shadow of a vampire right perhaps i don't actually know if he directed that as well but um the creative process what he did is he actually created his own optical printer in order to create the film stock to have an extremely harsh uh, black and white visual aesthetic so i would say like the aesthetic was the main inspiration for hypnos i wanted to create something that was palpable both with the visual and audio and then uh reading up a little bit about uh, greek mythology uh, kind of was the entry point to that because i was dealing with I was dealing with images and themes that were so universal that they just suited the piece really, really well. What is it about that harsh aesthetic that you mentioned that you that you think uh, appeals to you? Well, that's actually a brilliant question because, I mean, I was just talking about that recently with some friends of mine about, like, I think there is a little bit of a stigma to do with uh, calling oneself a dark uh, person, you know, assuming that, you know, they're obviously not referred to just being kind of like edgy or nihilist or anything like that. I don't think there's anything at all wrong with preferring art and wanting to make art that does um, that does tend to be 
nihilistic or does tend to be uh, driven by uh, so-called negative emotions as opposed to positive emotions because, uh, you know, it's, it's just purely human. I think that um, as a cinephile yourself, you would know that the likes of um, one of my go-tos would be Gaspar Noé. You know yeah. what I mean? He's certainly been an, an enormous influence uh, to me as a filmmaker. But you see him in interviews and he's far from a dark person at all. You know what I mean? He's extremely lighthearted. He's fair. He has a good sense of humor about the type of movies he's making. So I think that what appealed to me in making something like Hypnos, more so than anything else, I think the bottom line why I wanted to make this was probably the music side of things. Yeah, yeah can you talk a bit about that? Because... You know, a lot of people listening to this podcast will probably be into, you know, making short movies and you've made this mm-hmm. movie where you're the writer, you're the director, you're the co-producer, you're the co-editor and you've assembled this cast and crew to help realize your dreams. And how, how do you even, how do you go about mounting a, a production like this? And I know you mentioned that music was very key to the vision. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, whilst the uh, classical French paintings and other experimental works were uh, the inspiration for the aesthetic of it. I think the inspiration for the film overall was the sound design. I started with the idea in my head of what is this movie going to sound like? And then everything visual came afterwards. A lot of time with film, it's usually the other way around. But this was just based on, you know, everything is going to be rooted in what this film sounds like. So the music I've selected is from a music label called Cryo Chamber, and they specialize in dark ambient soundtracks. So I was utilizing three or four artists from their back catalog. I had accumulated over 10 hours of music from them that I would listen to over and over again, like track by track to to try and discover what's going to allow the themes of this film to really come to the forefront and what's going to serve as the beginning and the middle and the end. And most people are surprised to hear this about the film, but I would say that uh, had I not gained permission from that record label to use their music in and of the first place, I wouldn't have made this film at all. That's how important the music was to me. If I didn't have that permission, I would have came up with a different idea for a movie. So do you acquire the music definitely first and then you go into assembling this cast and crew? So this film was made in conjunction with my Masters in Film Production and Direction in NUIG Galway. Uh, there was about 14 of us in the class, so each of us had to make a pitch for the film we wanted to make as the final project. And whichever four films get picked out of those 14, it is then up to you to assemble your uh, crew from the remainder of the students and to then seek your cast, seek your props, seek your location, and go about it from there. So prior to my pitch, not only had I acquired the music, but I had also done some test photography and experimented a bit with the colour aesthetic. And I was very clear from the very beginning that this is exactly what the film I'm trying to make is. Uh, The supervisors were very, they were very accepting of what I was trying to do because it was a little bit abstract, it was a little bit uh, unorthodox for a college project, but they were a little bit more stringent in making sure that it was something that was narrative driven and it wasn't just I don't want to say surface level because that sounds a little bit condescending, but you know what I mean? It needs to be something that is linked to a tangible story that allowed me to create something that was maybe not necessarily cohesive in a traditional sense, but it did allow me to be cohesive in the aesthetic I was trying to create and the process of this leads to this leads to this. So from there, my idea was picked and I had the crew of other classmates selected and within that I was then able to act as the writer, the director, the co-producer and the co-editor of the piece. 
so there was uh, quite a lot on my plate, as you can imagine, trying to uh, do all that on top of working 30 hours a week in a grocery right. store on top of it as well. You know what I mean? It, it was quite challenging, but um, it was incredibly rewarding as well because I had never done anything on this kind of a scale uh, before. I think the movie looks incredible and I was very surprised to hear that it only cost 500 euro and I was just curious how you managed to take what I imagine is um, you know, an Irish forest and turn it into something which feels so grand and mythical. Well, I mean, I do have to give a shout out to my co-editor there, uh, Killian Kane, on that one. Um, he was very receptive to the aesthetic that I wanted to create with this and the two of us worked very hard in being able to create that with the colour grading, particularly with the this middle section of the film that uh, that looks entirely red. But again, you know, I knew that I, I had it in my head that I know exactly what this film needs to look like. I know it needs to have this level of contrast, these shots. I know that there needs to be this much of a disparity between the white on the screen and the black on the screen. I know that I'm going for extreme close-ups and then quite jarring wides as well. So when it came to picking uh, the actual location, it was shot locally in Barna Woods, which we got enormously lucky with because all around the Galway area, there's no woodlands that actually look this way. There's no other woodlands that look appropriate for this piece. And then when we're doing our location scout, we picked this place last. And within 30 seconds of walking into the place, it was like, this is perfect. This is what I had in my head. <laughs> And it's a 10-minute drive away from our college. No, that's like, amazing. Just how lucky could you get? Uh, with regards to the budget question, um, we got pretty lucky in that. I mean, like, there's no... We got ex- extremely lucky. I mean, I think that as a filmmaker, I was... I don't want to say cheating, but I was definitely being a little bit cheeky in the sense that I was shooting a movie where we didn't have to worry about sound because yeah. all the sound was just going to be, you know, the sound design of the music. So... The bulk of the film was shot uh, three days back to back, and then there was just some extra B-roll a couple of days after that where we got to focus on some of the more tricky shots. But uh, yeah, the idea of making a film and you don't have to worry about sound equipment, you don't have to worry about actors uh, flubbing their line or there being the sound of like the rustling of the leaves underneath or anything like that. Yeah, the idea that you're just setting up a camera and shooting what you can. We didn't have to rely on external lights or anything like that. We got very lucky that we were shooting in the daytime. So all the kind of the darkness of the film comes down to just the color grading. That sounds great. And Indie Cork is happening between October 4th and the 11th. And I believe it's going to be a hybrid of cinema screenings in Cork as well as a new virtual hub. Uh, with many films available to watch online. And I imagine Hypnos will be part of a shorts program, right? And I know you don't have the exact date it's going to screen yet, but what can you say for people who want to check it out? Uh, Yeah, keep your eye on the uh, schedule and come along and see it. Its name is Hypnos, H-Y-P-N-O-S. And I know that you mentioned that you're really happy that Hypnos is going to play in a cinema because it's it's such an overwhelming experience. But, um, you know, it, it must be great as well that it is going to play virtual uh, for people who aren't in Cork to expand your potential audience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, you know, cinema, as you know yourself, it's a it's a very strange medium in that, you know, there's so much there's so much of an effort that gets put into it. it it's always a collaboration. Uh, you can't do all this by yourself. Unfortunately, you do have to be 
you do have to find people who are willing to share your vision and to put the work in with you. And that's not even thinking about the financial aspect of it. You know what I mean? And then when it's finally made, oftentimes you can't just put it online because you do have to be wary of which festivals will allow you, won't allow you to do that. If anything good has come from the particular times we're living in, it's that people are now used to getting the film festival experience from the comfort of their own home. I think it's a little bit more personal in that kind of aspect. I know there are, of course, going to be deficits to that as well as assets. But yeah, it's going to be very exciting now that I'm going to be able to put a link up online and people will be able to click it and they'll be able to uh, experience the film. I think as well, over uh, the last couple of months, I was actually myself working uh, for the Cork International Film Festival. I was on their pre-selection team. So uh, I was getting films in each week and I was selecting, you know, which is acceptable which maybe doesn't quite uh, reach the standard required. But if from that process, I understand that there are so many films submitted and so few can be selected as a result. And they're an incredibly high standard. So from that experience, knowing that my film has now gone into this festival, it's something that I'm not taking it for granted as much as I would have previously done because I know that you can really make a, an aesthetically and technically brilliant film, but it just might not fit into that catalogue. And of course, it's going to be uh, determined on the selector's preconceived notions as to what constitutes as quality cinema as well. So, I yeah, I think it, I'm uh, definitely over the moon to see the film being able to be put not only in the cinema setting in general, but to have been part of the curated Irish film festival scene. Right. And is there anything you're working on at the minute as a follow-up to Hypnos? Well, it's actually, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, before production on Hypnos even started, I shot what was, at the time, my first proper drama-driven piece. Uh, my previous film before uh, this was a documentary, so between the documentary and uh, Hypnos, I had shot a kitchen sink drama uh, with a couple of friends of mine, and I wasn't able to start editing that until this year, actually, because I had to acquire my own editing equipment to do so. Uh, so I, at the minute, the assembly cut of that is done, and I've been uh, working on sound mixing at the moment, which has been it, it's been rewarding because I'm kind of teaching myself how to sound mix as I'm going along. It's my very first time doing it. I don't have any tutors or mentors to teach me how to do it. It's all throwing myself in the deep end and hoping I, I'm able to swim. So yeah, that's in post-production at the moment. I would say to keep your eye on the Indie at Cork uh, website and, yeah, come along to see Hypnos or view it online. I'd really love for you to be able to experience it. Thank you for taking the time and speaking to me. Um, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, no problem. I hope you enjoyed those chats. We'll be back next week with the latest entry in our Halloween-themed character active series. Until then, see you later, Cinephiles. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.